You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Okay, if we would, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to continue on in the series that we've been in, this idea of how do we live and the culture that we find ourselves in. And so today we'll be coming, we'll start in Daniel. We'll see if it continues on in the coming weeks. I don't have control over that. Um, It has my vote. To set the stage for you guys, we know that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament separated out and Judah was separate from Israel. We know that in that separation that God brings judgment against each of those now individual nations. And Israel faces judgment probably over 100 years before the nation of Judah actually experiences that same judgment. You know what's funny, Caleb, is I thought that was your son, and I thought, what could he be banging on right now? That was so funny. Just because it came in a similar, that that direction. (laughs) He thought it too. Okay, so this is what's happening now. Judgment is coming to the nation of Judah, and God, through prophets, has been preparing the nation of Judah. Hey, John, will you turn the screen off? I don't want Screen Ledger to make fun of me, so... So God now has prepared them for that, and then this is where we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Put in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, in some versions it'll say chief of the eunuchs, or captain of the eunuchs, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them to a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the, enter the kingdom service, king's service. Verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. All right, so let's pray now. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for the the worship that we've gotten to experience, Lord. uh, Lord, forgive us for times that we take that for granted, take the opportunity for granted, and take take for granted your presence. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that moment. Lord, we pray that as we open your word and we look at Daniel, God, that these timeless truths will just be a part of our life, God, that we'll accept them in our heart, we'll apply them to our next steps, God. And Lord, we just give you thanks for what you're going to do in this service. In your name we pray. Amen. So the socio-political dynamics were when Babylon comes to Jerusalem, it's going to come in three waves. This is the first wave that Daniel is now a part of. Babylon comes in with its armies and it's it's imposing its will now on Jerusalem. It goes into the temple, takes artifacts, and then it goes through and picks through the population to find out those, those qualities that we listed earlier that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be trained. So you can imagine how good you felt about yourself if you were taken and if you were left behind. 
uh, not handsome or not intelligent or not strong. All of those are categories that we don't want to necessarily fall into. But Daniel's picked out of the nobility. He's taken to Babylon. And now Nebuchadnezzar is bringing him into his kingdom. He leaves as a captive. Now, when you hear a prophet, you think of some old bald guy, right? Um, Daniel's young. He's 14, 15 years old. He's a young man when he's taken from Babylon. And unless he was one of those guys that went bald in high school, you know, we all know those guys. God bless them. I feel sorry for them. Um, Daniel was probably a young man, full head of hair and a nice stubbly beard. In the Jewish culture, he would have been a man. He would have been past the bar mitzvah. He's 14, 15 years old. But he's, and we don't know yet what happens. We don't know what actually happens to Daniel because the word eunuch, we all know what that means, adults. Um, but that it could also mean like a royal official. And we don't know if Daniel was castrated coming into Babylon or if he just got the royal official title. If I'm Daniel and I wasn't, I would be like, hey, can we not say eunuch here? Um, can we just say royal official? But we don't know. It could have been, though, that that, that was the, the torture that he went through coming into Babylon. What we do know is that he's taken from his home, from his family, the hope of a future of a Hebrew man raising a family and contributing to a kingdom. He's taken away from all of that. And we know that he doesn't have a family mentioned in the book of the Bible. And so the future, his own personal future, what he foresaw happening with him in Israel is all taken away from him. And as a young man, he's taken into captivity. He's taken to a place where the culture around him is totally adverse to the culture that he grew up in. Where the currents and the themes of the culture totally disagree with the way that he was brought up, with the way that he thinks. So the God that he believes in, they don't believe in. The idols that he, that he detests and hates, they promote. All of these different things, everything he's taken into is counter to what he was raised up in. So he finds himself in a culture where people disagree with inherent truths that he believes in, that they are pressuring him to take steps that he doesn't want to take, that he doesn't want to take, and to accept the steps of others that he doesn't believe in or totally disagrees with, and he's all alone. So you can see why Daniel is a good book for us to look at. If we're looking at how we live, we can try to see some similarities between where Daniel was and then where Christians are in America and then also across the world. We're in a culture that, that, that is actually opposed to many of the fundamental truths that we believe in the Bible, that we believe in faith. And not only opposed, they're actively working against the principles that this Bible teaches. And so you ask, how should we live? Let's take a look at Daniel and see if we can pull away some truths. First, I've got four, and they all start with you. Um, that's you, the letter, not you, the word. Um, they all start with you. Uh, we have the, he was an upbringing in the faith. Daniel was brought up in the faith. And so when he leaves his nation as a 14, 15-year-old kid, he doesn't necessarily have a pocket Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. He's bringing what was instilled in him, imprinted in him as he grew up. And so Daniel goes to Babylon with only the knowledge that he was raised up with. He has that knowledge. And he's a kid, really, when taken. Remember, we've talked about it a lot of times from this pulpit, the idea of the Shema that it's one of the most, like, it's the foremost scripture probably for a Jew. 
In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, I'll just read it to you. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And if you want to know how important that is to a Jewish family, I think it's called a mezuzah. If you go into a Jewish home, they have the Shema in a little canister thing on the doorframe of their home. They took that scripture and they actually applied it to the doorframes of their homes. And whenever a Jew would leave their home, they come through and they'll actually touch the Shema on their way out. And many of them will kiss the hand that touched it. So this is like a really important thing for a Jew. For a Jew. And Daniel was brought up with that. He takes the Shema with him into Babylon. And all of the influence of the culture around him weren't going to take away the law that God had imprinted on his heart as being raised, being raised up in Israel. He brings that with them. So let me ask you this. What if somebody were to take your child? What if somebody were to take them and make them a captive in another land where they had no church, they don't have a version Bible app, they don't have a pocket New Testament, they take them away from all of the things that you've raised them up. What would they remember about your interactions as a parent to a child? What are we pouring into our kids? What are we impressing upon the hearts of our children? Because for Daniel, when you sit in the home, when you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you get up, these prayers should be on your lips. And that was impressed into his heart as a young man. What do your kids see you do? I was raised in a home where, you know, my dad had a, a one-year Bible and Bibles laid out. And I would see when I got up, he was already gone a lot of the time. Um, he had read the, that day or, and, and he'd have his cup of coffee somewhere near. Um, and so I got to see that I, a parent that walked with the Lord. Y'all, we've got to be able to communicate. We've got to communicate our walk with God to our children. They need to know that you read your Bible every day. And so there's times where I get to tell my boys about when I wake up, I read my Bible every morning. I lay in bed with my YouVersion app, and it keeps track of how many days I've done in a row. Um, so I go and I read my Bible, and I read from different passages across the Scripture. And then I spend time praying for them, praying for my work, praying for our church. And... Our kids need to know that. A lot of times it's kind of, we just keep it. We don't think about it because there's so many other pressing things that we have to talk to them about that we don't actually get to the spiritual a lot of times with our children. So a lot of our kids would actually walk away and they could tell you how to hold a football, how to hit a baseball, how to hold a pencil, how to read a book or make sure you get your assignments done in school because that was actually what consumed all of our interactions with our children. And so if you're a parent, you need to think, I think we need to think about do I talk to my kids in depth? Riding in a car, I think, is a great option. Do I talk to them at length, right? Is it 30 seconds and then I'm yelling for them to shut up? Um, what are my interactions with my children like? And have I impressed on them? Am, am I bringing them up in the faith like Daniel was brought up in the faith? Because what you talk to them about is what they're going to think you care about. And they're probably going to go off of that. So what they think you care about, they'll actually expand upon. 
until they get to teenage years and then they'll try to move along, I don't know, and then they'll come back eventually. But as you sit in the home, as you walk along the way, when you get up, when you lie down. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Daniel goes into Babylon with the heart that had been guarded by his parents, and now he was going to be charged with guarding his heart. Daniel's going to go through... He's going to go through Babylon's education system. He's going to go through Babylon's, like, Oxford University at the time, foremost premier education. He's going to go through all of their schooling, and his upbringing in the faith is going to be vital to him not being swayed by those dynamics. And so for us, we look at that principle. He's got an upbringing in the faith, and it should challenge us to want to bring our kids up in the faith because the currents of the culture are moving. It's like walking your child through a river, the currents of the culture, the media, everything that we have that's going out there, everything that's mainstream is actually moving our children's, their hearts and minds in a certain direction. All of the world's moving in that direction. And if you're a parent, you want to be able to establish your child with an upbringing in the faith that lets them put roots, roots down that make them strong against those flows, those currents of the culture that are pushing them one way, that they're actually strong in their belief. And so Jeremiah 17, 8, when God's talking about the nation of Israel, he says, they'll be like a tree planted by water that sends, its, sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. We need our roots to be deep into God's truth, and we need the roots of our children to be deep into God's truth, where all of the sways and the currents of the world don't move them. So his upbringing in the faith brings him this understanding of God's law. All right, second you. This understanding of God's law. It's in Daniel's mind, it's hidden in his heart, and he brings it with him into Babylon. And so when he comes there, he's not just knowledge of God's law, it's an understanding of applying God's law. So if we open back up, we're going to go to verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself, with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. We see there God in the midst of captivity, still looking out for his children. But the official told Daniel, in verse 10, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. This understanding of God's law actually translates into action on, on the part of Daniel. Now we could, simple review, look back at our life. What actions do we take based on our understanding of God's word? But the big question I think is like, why do you believe what you believe? And like a follow-up question, like, what do you actually believe, right? For Daniel, this was like a, a bedrock belief in God's law. And nothing that was expected of him in the culture was going to change that. Because he understood that God's law was going to apply to him whether he was in Babylon or whether he was in Israel. And that his only hope moving forward was to trust in God's word and God's truth to do that. So here we come back to our culture, where we are right now. What is our understanding of God's law telling us now? And many of us were 
We've had people say it to us, we've heard it from a preacher, but we haven't actually gotten to it ourselves, of knowing why we believe the way that we believe, of looking at the scripture and seeing how God has carried his truth across all of, all of time. And so for us, I think it's important for us to tap into God's truth, understand God's law, and then be able to defend it against the culture to where we're not moved. If our kids can have that kind of understanding, if we can have that kind of understanding, then we can kind of cut through the minutia of the culture and look and see, hey, the real issue here is this. Not what they're telling you. It's right here. And so an understanding of God's word, I think, is going to be very important for us in the culture in which we find ourselves. We can't be afraid of the culture. Daniel goes in, into Babylon bravely. He goes to Babylon University bravely. He's going to be taught by the best magicians and enchanters in all of the land, right? A teaching that was totally counter to everything that he believed. But there's no indication that he didn't go through it. He went through it. Also, think about it, like, if we were going to draw the line, we would get to this foreign nation and be like, wait, you mean all I get to eat is meat and wine and drink wine? Um, some of you are like, sign me up. <laughs> Take me on. Um, there's a million areas where Daniel could have stood his ground. Uh, there were going to be times where he couldn't pray. There were going to be times where he had to bow down. We're not even to those moments yet. Because we're at this early moment where Daniel actually draws the boundaries of he's going to serve God. Like he's going to commit himself to God. And the first place that he's challenged, the first place that he has to take the stand is with his diet. And here he is. We would be like, listen, Daniel, as Baptist... Um, food is okay. You can kind of just skirt around those commandments. Jesus' blood is going to cover that eventually. You're going to be all right. But Daniel draws a line and follows. He understands God's law, and God's law, he follows God's law. See, the culture around us is going to try to convince us of something else. So whenever we go, the university setting in America is not Christian, not pro-Christian. It's going to undermine the faith of students. And whenever we send people off there, now we find ourselves not wanting to send them, you know. So we're going to have a lot of good Christian tradesmen, which we need. But we also need Christian professionals that go through these academic settings, right? And so we need to let, we raise them up, we bring them up in the faith. They have an understanding of God's law, and then they can't be influenced by the world. We send them off into those systems, into the school system, into the university system, into that professional setting, wherever they find themselves, and then we trust them to be able to follow what God's law commands. Because when they get to the university level, what's going to happen is, what happens, I think, in most philosophy classes? So, philosophy teacher comes in. He draws a picture of eyeglasses on the dry erase board, and he colors the lens in with a yellow tint. And then... This, this college professor is going to look at your children. He's going to say, My, you all have been raised with different color lenses by which you see the world. And my job as your college professor is to, and he went over and he wiped the lens away. Now, I'm sure he had a master's degree from the finest online university of the 1990s, um, which gave him the ability to override centuries of scripture of men of God that have been writing, men and women of God that have been writing and proclaiming the God's truth throughout all of these centuries. And guess what? A lot of kids who aren't founded, they aren't brought up in God's word, they don't understand God's law, it works. 
You wipe that color away, and now they can teach you, parents, about what the real world's like. About, and maybe they have the audacity to tell grandma at Thanksgiving what's actually true and what's not true and how she was affected by her upbringing. And a good grandmother will... No, just joking. No, I'm joking. Um, they have to have an understanding of God's law to not be swayed by these different things. If you watch media, you watch culture, and you watch, so if you spend most of your time on, think about it, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, who's a what's it, um, all of these different things, there's not pro-Christian truth coming out of that, right? They've got to have that ability to be able to cut through all of that to get to truth and what's real. And if we haven't brought them up, if they don't have that understanding of God's law, then they're not going to be able to do it. So what, what's real is when God allows us to cut through that, we get to see what's around the corner. So the Bible teaches this, that marriage should be between one man and one woman. Right? But the culture teaches, like, y'all, we're getting ready to take off. It's no holds barred, like, you can just do whatever you want in marriage. The biblical marriage and family is constantly disparaged, and every other new iteration of family is raised up. So single moms, single dads, double mom, triple mom, that's not going to matter. And so the Bible teaches us that primary truth. One man, one woman, right? <laughs> Thank y'all. Uh, whenever the, the Bible now, so we have that truth, one man, one woman. God sees what's around the corner. And that's why he gives us the principles that he gives us. Because 30, 40, 50 years from now, God's going to be right. And God can prevent all of that wrong if you could just follow his plan originally. So let's just go to the marriage thing. Think about how we've seen the, the disillusion of the biblical family in America. And are we better for it? Did divorce help us? Did bunches of divorces help us? And people that have gone through divorce would say, hey, I, I wish I never had Oh, man, this mic. Um, I wish I would have never had to go through that. I wouldn't want anybody else to have to go through that. I wish I could have followed God's plan. I wish that God's plan would have worked out, and I wasn't following him at that time. But God's plan, he knows what's around the corner, so the flirty relationship while you're married with somebody else, God knows how that ends. And it ends with me being your attorney and you're in the court of law. All right. The liquor cabinet, and you think, putting the liquor cabinet in my house, okay. The Bible doesn't say you can't drink, you just can't get drunk, Okay. But then God sees around the corner, and he sees a child that gets into it, or you going 45 days without, without not drinking. That's a double negative. Drinking every day for 45 days and not being able to stop. God sees flirty relationships that go straight to sin. God sees a live-in relationship that's only going to damage the two people that are living together. And I don't, I mean, I don't want you to live together for a decade. Unless your wedding ceremony is like an act of repentance, I don't know why you waste that money, right? It's like, hey, we are the same as we were the day before, but you wore a dress and I wore a tux. God sees what's around the corner. He knows that people that live together are usually going to use and abuse one another. And if I let somebody, you know, the, the great example is, the Gray Daniels gave me a nice new F-250. And they told me I didn't have to sign anything for it and didn't have to pay anything for it. I could just bring it back and trade it out. I do this with rental vehicles already. I would just run it as hard and as fast as I could, right? And just tear it up and not take care of it. Now, the Christian work ethic in me changes that to where I won't, wouldn't do that. 
But it's the same thing with relationships. If you get into a relationship where there's no commitment required at all, and if it doesn't work out, you'll just go trade it out for a new one, think about how the mind of man works. It's not going to work out. God's plan is a better plan. God's law is a better way. So God's law protects us from the consequences of what we would, what we would undergo, like what we would have if we chose sin. God's law protects us from what, what's going to happen. If we can avoid sin in the first place, we won't have to deal with the earthly consequences of sin. God's law pre preserves the things that we cherish. Like, we can be flawed in attempting to accomplish God's law, and we'll be okay. Like, we'll be better than if we are flawed and throw away God's law and just jump into depravity. And so what we see are these currents in the culture that are moving people back and forth, and you see a lot of Christians, they were brought up in faith. And at one time, they understood God's law. But then the culture wiped away the tent of God's law off their glasses, and like Adam and Eve, they look and say, wait, this fruit tastes good. And then they go through generations of heartache because of it. And so if you're, I don't know if you're here today, I think everybody here today, y'all are all like hardcore church members. I actually prayed an extra blessing for you before we came in here. I said, Lord, they braved the cold and the rain. I pray that you'll give them an extra blessing. Facebookers, no blessing for you, okay? <laughs> What we have today, though, is we have people that were brought up in the faith, they understood God's law at one time, and then they chose the way of the world, and like James 1, 6, they're like a wave. They get tossed about by every new thought, every new scholastic article they read, every new newspaper article they read, or usually it's like Facebook posts that they clicked on and saw the headline of, didn't actually dig into, and then fixed their thoughts based on that. God doesn't want that. God wants us firmly planted and y'all, listen, we'll give structure for the culture when we do that. So upbringing in the faith, an um, understanding of God's law, and an unwavering commitment to God's way. Daniel's commitment in this intense situation, it puts God's plan on full display for the culture. He stands up, and, he's, and you get to say, look at Daniel, and look at the other magician, Right? A lot of them died because Daniel was that good. Like, the king was like, just kill that guy. I'm keeping Daniel. Um, that's, y'all, that's what we're supposed to be. Now, let me ask you something. You decide you're going to trim down. I need to trim down. Some of you may as well. And you go to the gym, and they say, hey, we got a trainer for you. Now, you got to pay them. I don't know what the hourly rate for a trainer is, but we're just going to say $50 an hour. Okay. And when the trainer comes out, they're morbidly obese, disheveled, and they're out of breath walking up to you. But they have a kinesiology degree. <laughs> they have trained in the ways of physical fitness. How many of you would actually want to pay that guy $50? Okay. I might one time just for the fun of it, right? <laughs> And so here's the thing. We're supposed to stand as an example to the culture, and the culture looks at us and says, uh, no thanks. Why would I listen to you, right? So if you bend on, just talk about legal stuff real quick. Um, criminal defense. If you want to win a criminal defense case, just let one cop lie one time. And it can be like a small lie. 30 minutes earlier, he put the police report in, 
but he said it was then. Um, the jury turns on a cop. And the world looks at us in the same, and it's kind of the same way. You break it one time. You break that law one time. And we're going to disown you. I'm not even talking about that situation. I'm talking about continual disobedience that now has the world saying they don't want any of it. That they're not going to listen to us. And so we're not perfect. We get to preach to people that we're not perfect, that Jesus is perfect, and that Jesus is in us is the only reason we get to go to heaven and the only reason we get heaven here on earth. But what's happened now in America and other cultures is that we all just kind of, we're not founded in God's truth. We don't stand strong under the pressure. And people in the world see that and they see right through it. If you want to know what you're committed to, you could ask yourself the really simple question, what do you wear a t-shirt for? I don't like wearing t-shirts that much. I don't think I have the, I got to get my physical trainer to help me get beefed up like Mandel. Um, but what do you wear a t-shirt for? Um, what do you post on Facebook? What do you post on social media? What are you pushing out there? Daniel's commitment was continually demonstrated. Listen, y'all, he would survive different kings and different kingdoms. It would transition from Babylon, I think, to the Medo-Persian Empire, and Daniel's still there. He's still a high-ranking royal official in a new administration. He stood the test of time. So I just want to point out real quick, we've already talked a little about marriage and family, um, and we have kids in the room, so it kind of changes the way the discussion happens. But, uh, like, Ethan has asked me, like, Dad, what's pornography? And I'm like, uh thanks, church. Um, but let's just talk about gender orientation. We recently, I was teaching the youth, and we talked through Genesis chapter 1, and we were talking about how God created the heavens and the earth. And finally it gets to the end of it, and it says this twice. It says, male and female, he created them. And I was able to look at youth and say, hey guys, what does the culture tell us about this? So the culture's t totally con contradicting now what we see in scripture, totally opposing it. So now it's like, do you support us or are you transphobic? And what we have now is we actually have adolescent children that are chemically suppressing puberty. Little girls, adolescent girls, they're suppressing puberty, they're taking testosterone, and then at the age of 16, they can get a mastectomy and make a physical transformation. Whenever we say we're going to compare the culture to the church, it is not a thumb your nose at the culture. It's heartbreak for the culture. Because what happens is these young girls, when they get older and they actually have a good head on their shoulders and they're not in puberty with a million chemicals firing off, they're stuck with forever five o'clock shadow. They've, total, they've mutilated their bodies. And many of them are going to be infertile going forward because of the chemicals they put into their body and the things that they've, they've taken. And they look back with all this regret, and we have a society that wouldn't even allow the parent to know about it because the parent might bring some kind of judgment and be adverse to the child. So we left the parent out and didn't tell them that we were given testosterone and chemicals to suppress puberty. We get to look at the culture and say, hey, God's way, the way of the culture. And eventually, y'all, it may be the 30, 40-year point when finally people look at it and they say, that's it. That was the truth. In the meantime, they're going to sling mud. Listen, the only reason that this doesn't work is because you don't accept it. 
and the society doesn't accept it, and you're the problem, not this one person, not this person having this issue. And we get to lovingly say we're going to follow God's way because that's what we've been doing since Jesus. That's what, that's what people that have followed God have done since Adam and Eve. But let the world compare. So Daniel presents this perfect model, I think. He, he's really, there's nothing bad about Daniel ever said. Okay, so he's a perfect model. His unwavering commitment to God's way shows the difference between the culture and between what God's plan is. And then lastly, I don't know what time it is. Oh, good. I'm trying to hurry. Um, uh, we have, okay, sorry. Uh, bringing in the faith, um, understanding of God's law, unwavering commitment to God's way, and then lastly, unity with, with believers. I had brothers, but I want to make sure it's gender neutral for you guys. Unity with believers that helped him. Daniel's not alone. He's surrounded by brothers that came from Israel with him. He's surrounded in this one moment by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's funny how the Babylonian names are the ones that we remember. I don't know why we, but whatever. Okay, so whenever we get to, let's, we're going to pick up in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. I know, so we're going to keep going. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and they were to, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world power at the time. Verse 19, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He's put into a situation, he's in captivity, he has zero leverage. Zero leverage. What I like about Daniel is this, that unwavering commitment to God's way was also a nice logical and objective, um, I use the word logic and objectivity and perspective a lot. If you know me, I try to always be objective. Daniel brings objectivity to the test. Okay, give me 10 days. And what he's saying is, give God 10 days. And we're going to be looking like we're really fit and these other guys are going to be not going to compare to us, okay? It comes true. God comes through. God's way works. And the world got to see it. Babylon got to see it. But I don't know if it's as easy or if it happens without the unity of his brothers. We don't need to underestimate the power of God's family in doing God's work. We need each other. Hebrews 10, 25 and 20, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as are in the habit of some, that some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This New Testament church is supposed to be one where we cheer one another on as we take these stands for what God's truth says, that we look beside us and we have brothers and sisters on each side of us that are also standing with us, that are encouraging us, that are praying for us, because that's what Daniel ends up happening, having. When he's there and there's a point where he's got to interpret a dream, 
His brothers pray for him through the night while Daniel is actually having the interpretation given to him by God. We need each other. And what do we see the culture doing? Driving wedges between every Christian church they can. They would rather us focus more, depend more, identify with more on the color of our skin than with our Savior, or with our political party or our political beliefs than with our Savior. And so we see the culture, and I think that there's an undermine, there's an underlying spiritual dynamic for sure. It's trying to drive a wedge in the unity that we need to be able to stand strong in God's truth. And so, listen, unity doesn't mean homogeneity. <laughs> homogeneity. Um, the Bible is diverse. I mean, the church is diverse. We're filled with different colors. We're filled with men and women. We're filled with different beliefs about Listen, there's some things that don't matter, like in, when it comes to church. Big government spending, small government spending. We can disagree on that, and we should still have unity in the church. I wrote some other things down. Mask, no mask. We could still have unity about the things of God. Vaccine, no vaccine. We could still have, we could still have community, even if you don't have immunity. Popeye spicy chicken sandwich, Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich. We can disagree here, and we actually have unity. But when it comes to the things, when it comes to God's law, we're one. We stick together. We have each other's backs. So when it comes to the lives of the unborn, or it comes to elevating every new iteration of the family and, and knocking down the biblical model of the family, we can stand together. When it comes to the fight against racism, we get to stand together. And so when it, when it comes to caring after the less fortunate, we get to stand together. And so we need that unity. We need God's unity that comes from his church. Uh, recently, Brother Bob Smith, some of you have been here long enough to have heard him preach. He was a blind evangelist, and he died um, just several weeks or probably months ago now. Um, I grew up with Brother Bob Smith, blind evangelist come into our house and he would stay with us while he was preaching revivals um when he came in i don't know if anybody else has this dynamic or had this happen in their home but when he came in energy came to this house like it came to our house i, I guess it would be what i would call like, it was like a fun uncle dynamic uh, if some of you have had a fun uncle um when, they, when he came, there were jokes, there, were, there was joy and just laughter and volume and energy when he was there. And him and my dad were very close, best friends. And they would joke, they would joke together, they would be there. I remember leaving for school with them, laughing, and them coming home from work, laughing still. There was a lot of energy in that relationship. Um, they were also there for each other in times where ministry was hard. And they would comfort one another. They would stand by one another. And so, whenever I heard that he had died, and I was kind of processing that, first I noted the energy that he brought, and then I thought, first off, I wish I had a friend like those two had. And secondly, I wish I was a friend like those two were. We need unity and real fellowship in the church to stand in this society, to stand in this culture. And all of us are in our different situations. We need one another to check on us. And that doesn't mean babysit or coddle, but it means that there's care that's shown 
that you actually are concerned with how another brother or sister is doing. We have to have that if we're going to stand strong. So as each of us puts our roots firmly in understanding God's law, and we find ourselves coming under pressure from society and the culture, it helps when a brother or sister steps up beside us and they help us bear it. They help us bear that weight. In closing, guys, Daniel would become the mouthpiece of God to Israel and to Babylon. He would be able to watch out as a government official. He was watching out for God's people inside of, inside of Babylon. And he was able to take care of them. He would come under immense pressure. He would be thrown into a lion's den. His friends would be thrown into a fiery furnace. He didn't live an easy life. But whenever those moments came, he trusted in God and God took care of him. And so the only hope that we have in the society is the same hope we had last year and the year before and a hundred years before that and a thousand years before that. The hope that God is actually, that God is taking care of us. That no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what presidential administration that we're under, God actually has a plan for us. And maybe, just maybe, when, the society, when society gets this crazy or this toxic and the culture has all of its different influences that it's wielding against God's church, maybe that's the moment where we stand the tallest, where we are the strongest as we put our roots into God's word and law and the hope of the gospel. And God strengthens us in that moment like we never would have been if things were easier. So if you're here today and you're a parent and you realize, man, I'm dropping the ball. I'm missing out. Today's a new day. We can pick up. Um, Today, if you're a person that was brought up in the faith and you felt, your, you felt yourself swaying and straying away from that truth, then the altar's open. We can come here and we can pray together. And you can repent of that. If you're somebody that lives their life without God's law, don't ever think about God's word, don't think about why you believe what you believe, well, then now is the time where you can dig your roots deep. And this is the time to do it. And then to make that commitment to God that you're not going to bow out when the fight comes. When the, counter, when the counter argument comes up, that you'll stand by God's truth. And then finally, let it be a day that we, kind of, we commit to one another to be there for one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another to walk with God. And maybe, just maybe, guys, this will be the strongest days of this church and uh, in our lives, where we get to stand up for the Lord, and we get to stand strong, and we get to stand together. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, uh, I thank you, God, that when Daniel left, when he left Israel, him and his, him and his parents had the same hope. God, that you were going to be with him there. And his parents watched their son taken away from them at a young age. Lord, they got to hope that the things that they had imprinted on his heart would stick with him. Lord, I pray that truths that you have given us, God, you will just imprint them on our heart. Help us to stand tall for you, God, like trees that are planted by water, God, that the outside influence of the culture won't affect us, God, but we'll stand firm. Lord, that we'll stand together. And Lord, that non-essential issues won't divide us, God, that we'll walk with you. So Lord, as people need to make a decision today, Lord, if somebody's a Christian and they need to be saved, God, I pray that they'll come. 
Lord, if somebody's drifted away or they have a shallow walk with you, God, in a time when we need deep Christians, Lord, I pray that they'll come and pray. Lord, I pray that this will be a day, God, that we just refocus our eyes on you. In your name we pray.